Unfortunately, the positive trajectory discussed in Part 1, in Era 1, did not continue, and very soon the outlook for people with disabilities changed drastically, which brings us to the second era in the history of special education, an era marked by stagnation and regression. As a result of urbanization, immigration, and industrialization, the population in the United States grew drastically toward the end of the 19th century. In step with growth in the general population, populations and institutions also grew. However, as populations grew, institutional costs naturally increased, and resident labor soon began to be used to offset expenses, reinforcing and energizing again the factory model of the institution. Assuming economy and improvement went hand in hand, school promoters and legislators began to explore additional ways to decrease expenditures, authorizing cheap buildings with little or no provision for the family environment, exercise, and treatment of patients as guests. With an elevated focus on skill and trade preparation, intellectual education was downplayed or, unfortunately, altogether eliminated. Neglecting the original emphasis on training, education, and preparation to return to society, institutions reverted to permanent, lifelong custodial residences. Reform ideology had undeniably given way to practical necessity. The new institution was in many ways no better than the old almshouse or prison even. Industrialization and urbanization and immigration began to place serious economic strains on social services as well, motivating social theorists to find ways to stem rising social problems it was a milieu ripe for the quick adoption and, and assimilation of new theories and philosophies. As a result, when Darwin published his biological theory about natural selection in the origin of the species, the competitive American society of the latter half of the 19th century saw its own image in the tooth-and-claw version of Darwin's theory of natural selection. Eager to find scientific support for preconceived notions of disability and deviance, social theorists quickly inferred that Darwin's scientific theory, describing the animal world, could also be applied to humans. The application of Darwin's biological theory to human society, social Darwinism, promoted the idea that nearly all characteristics, both biological and social, were inherited. Social Darwinism's reliance on genetic determination for explaining social and behavioral characteristics provided the foundation for the development of Galton's, Francis Galton's theory of eugenics, derived from the word eugenes, which means good in stock. Eugenics had two applications, positive or constructive eugenics, which is promoting the purposeful reproduction of those deemed the best stock, and negative or restrictive eugenics, promoting efforts to restrict those who are deemed unfit. From reproducing. Pedigree charts and genealogies were purported to distinguish the fit from the unfit. One of the most publicized genealogies was the Calicuck study by Goddard, documenting and popularizing the idea that crime, poverty, prostitution, and alcoholism are attributable to heredity, with intellectual disabilities being the principal factor in such conditions. As deviance and, and disability merged in the public eye, people with disabilities were once again perceived as threats. Moreover, potential applications of eugenics were highly appealing to professional and public sentiment eager to eliminate poverty, crime, drunkenness, and other socially inappropriate behaviors alleged to be forms of disability.
Emerging philosophical, scientific, and economic influences in the late 1800s recultivated the historic perception that people with disabilities were qualitatively different, a separate class, a contaminated species, um, is a quote from that time, and ultimately a threat and a burden to a progressive society. As a result, it became important to scientifically measure and validate difference. Eugenics, the art of breeding better men, imperatively demands reliable measurement of human traits of body and mind. The recently developed intelligence tests, though designed to measure cognitive ability, were quickly used to target inability, becoming one of the mainstays of America's new breed of moralists aiming to scientifically shape and control the individual. Eagerness to categorize and label while disregarding the role of social factors in the development of behavior quickly resulted in abuse of the test and the clinical test-related concept of intellectual disability. While attempts to encourage positive eugenics were made, such as the American Eugenics Society advocating for the provision of grants and allowances for chosen families who would reproduce quote-unquote desirable children, greater emphasis was placed on restrictive eugenics. Moreover, because disabilities such as insanity, deaf mutism, and serious congenital defects such as vision, epilepsy, and hemophilia were observable, restrictive eugenics offered the greater promise of beneficial outcome for the time. Furthermore, restrictive eugenics motivated support for institutionalization in order to once again segregate and isolate people with disabilities from society. Upon concluding that heredity determined all traits and characteristics, including intelligence, the pendulum clearly swung back to the view that disability was an issue of nature rather than nurture. Restrictive eugenics went well with the eugenicist's belief that it is the man who makes the environment, not the environment which makes the man. The editor of the Journal of Heredity went on to say, We eugenicists, therefore, feel ourselves in a position safely to generalize to the extent of saying that the importance of nature is five or ten times greater than that of nurture in the making of a man. As a result, restrictive eugenics aimed to decrease reproduction, first resorting to isolation and segregation. However, when people continue to reproduce, marriage restriction laws were enacted, and when they provide, proved untenable, sterilization was touted as the scientific solution. The argument supporting sterilization was that since advances in medical science had kept the markedly unfit alive, medicine should then assume a responsibility for curbing the surge of feebleness. From the, time. the first sterilization of a person in an institution was in 1899, and by the 1930s, over 30 states in the United States had enacted sterilization laws. Many state sterilization laws were predicated on a 1927 Supreme Court ruling that upheld the constitutionality of the Virginia sterilization law in the Buck v. Bell case. Eugenicists looking to establish the constitutionality of sterilization and ratify its practice, concluded that Carrie Buck, an illegitimate, illegitimate and at the time deemed feeble-minded daughter of a feeble-minded woman, had just given birth to a daughter who was also presumably feeble-minded. The testimony of a caregiver that Carrie's daughter, though only six months at the time, was, quote, unquote, not quite normal, served as a determining factor in the judgment of the case. Writing the opinion for the court, Justifer Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. concluded, It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. 
three generations of imbeciles is enough. Although reports later demonstrated that Carrie's daughter was an honor roll student and Carrie and her mother were both of normal intelligence, this case served to enshrine eugenic compulsory sterilization laws in a majority of states, paving the way for more than 60,000 operations in more than 30 American states and providing a precedent for 400,000 sterilizations in Nazi Germany. In fact, the German sterilization program that eventually led to the health and public policy that propagated the mass murder of people with disabilities, and subsequently the Jews, was, initiated mo was initially modeled after and inspired by American laws. As perceptions toward disability changed, special education lost much of its momentum because in no, way, in no circumstances were people with disabilities to be trained or educated with a view to the return to society, for if they returned to society, they might have children, was the fear. This educational repression was demonstrated by a report by the White House Conference on Child Health and Protection, estimating that of the 10 million children in the United States requiring special education, only 1 million received aid. For this 10%, teachers were poorly trained, curricula ill-conceived, and deep pessimism abounded. The growing focus on economizing institutions, the emphasis on heredity and fixed intelligence, and the view that people with disabilities were qualitatively different only confirmed the perceived futility of nurturing children with disabilities through training and teaching. Sadly, even special educators and advocates um, promoted some of the changing paradigms. Some of the most vigorous proponents of the new hereditary determination were found among prominent special educators. Their influence on, upon contemporary opinion was critical, for they were instrumental in hardening the attitudes of their contemporaries. Both Howe and Alexander Graham Bell assumed the influential positions, assumed influential positions in the eugenics movement. Furthermore, many educators contributed to shifting paradigms by overselling interventions presenting their findings and student outcomes with great zeal and enthusiasm, often demonstrating best-case scenarios and star pupils as the norm, resulting in disillusionment when the public realized treatments and interventions were older, oversold. As a result, the combined effects of institutions first resorting to factory and then custodial models, while also failing to fully live up to promised results, paved the way for society, society's eager embrace of the promise of a better future through eugenics. The public assimilation of eugenic principles in the early, early, early 20th century was swift.